House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Uh, today we are talking uh, to the author of Killing Woman. It's the true story of serial killer Don Miller's reign of terror. Thank you for being here, Rod Sadler. Thank you for having me. Okay, so um, first of all, how did you get into writing books? Let's, let's, let's give our listeners an idea of who you are and where you came from. Okay, uh, I was a police officer here in Michigan for 30 years. And uh, real briefly, early in my career, uh, my dad kept reminding me that my great-great-grandfather had been <clears throat> the sheriff in Ingham County in 1897. And so I was doing a little genealogical research early in my police career and came across this newspaper article about this horrible, vicious murder in the town that I had grown up in, a small town called Williamston in Michigan. And uh, a guy had come home and discovered that his wife had lopped off his mother's head and put it on a plate for him for dinner. And my great-great-grandfather had investigated it. And so when I finished my police career, when I retired in 2012, I thought, the time to write that book. And so I did the first book, and I had such a good time um, after that was published that uh, I did a second book uh, called The Slayer Waits, and that was about a double murder uh, also in Ingham County in 1955 where an elderly couple was bludgeoned to death in their barn by an escaped convict from the prison. And so that's kind of how I, I got into the, the writing aspect of it, and I absolutely love it. I, I really do. Wow, that's quite a story. Served the head for, for dinner. Did, did she serve gravy and potatoes, too? <laughs> oh, boy. Well, actually, uh, <laughs> as, as horrible as that sounds, uh, she did adorn both sides of the plate with knife and fork before she set the headless corpse on fire. Oh, uh, that's a long oh, day. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it really it was a, a, such a bizarre, bizarre crime. And I, I can remember uh, there was a historian in Williamston who, who gave me a, a scan of a local diary that one of the local farmers had kept uh, in 1897. And, and on that particular day when this murder occurred, he wrote, uh, oh, oh it, it rained a little bit today, uh, brought in some hay, uh, Mrs. Haney cut off her mother-in-law's head, I went to the feed store. You know, like it was no big deal. <laughs> I thought, well, that's kind of odd, but yeah. <laughs> I guess it was different times. <laughs> yeah, very strange, very strange. The original title of that book was going to be Head of the Table, uh, but I thought maybe I, be I better go with something different. So uh, I called that one To Hell I Must Go because that was a little song that she would sing in the jail cell. Wow. <laughs> You know, um, it's it, you know I have to laugh sometimes. It's terrible this stuff that we talk about, this horror and murder and all this stuff. But it's just a stress relief because it just seems so B movieish. You know, something you'd see in a terrible movie. You know, a lot of oh, a lot, absolutely. <clears throat> a lot of the first responders I know have a really dark sense of humor. So yeah, yeah, we we all did, uh, and some of us 
probably still do. And you're absolutely right. I, I, these are these are horrible, horrible stories. But uh, obviously, with 30 years in law enforcement, um, I had the ability to kind of shut out the bad, just do it as a job, and and you kind of develop that um, graveyard humor or that dark humor. I would I would think that you'd have to uh, to work through all of this stuff. Um because it's just too it's it's just too hard, especially when you're talking with um, members of the victims and stuff like that on your on your day to day job. That's kind of a you know there's got to be a way of getting through it. So yeah, yeah, it is. Uh, it's very difficult sometimes. Uh, I will tell you the only uh, funny story that I tell about this new book um, is uh, that my my wife was less than thrilled when uh, she discovered that we had gotten a letter from the serial killer. And uh, so when you do a a book talk, you probably know this, um, you try to start out with a a little bit of humor before you start. Well, this is a very, very dark story, but I always like to tell people in the audience when I start, uh, I'm going to ask you a question. How, how would you start a letter to a serial killer? And everybody kind of looks a little um, perplexed. And, and I, I say, I'll tell you how you start a letter to a serial killer with someone else's return address. <laughs> and that usually gets a little chuckle. So, yeah, yeah. Well, you see, I could have asked him that question. Before we went on air, I was going to, I was going to ask you, how long have you been killing women? You know? <laughs> Uh, <laughs> yeah, and, and, and actually, if you look at the title, under the title of the book, it says, A True Crime by Rod Sadler. Yeah. And my sister my sister pointed out to me, it said, she said, it makes it look as if you, you're the one doing it. Yeah. So, so what, what made you get into killing women? So, it's, yeah. It's kind of bizarre the way it's... Um, well, so how did you choose this case? Like, what about this case... Um, made you not only follow it, but write a book about it? Well, early, I say early in my career, before my career as a police officer, uh, when I was graduating from high school in uh, Williamston, uh, East Lansing had a series of of missing women, and uh, they had disappeared, and they subsequently arrested a guy by the name of Don Miller. And Don Miller was a graduate of the criminal justice program at Michigan State University, uh, just 20 miles to the west of Williamston. And, of course, I had already chosen my career in law enforcement and criminal justice, and so I kind of followed the story closely and then, you know, had kind of forgotten about it until late in the 90s when uh, he was discovered with a strangulation device in his, in his uh, prison cell and was... Uh, charged with that and that went to trial and he was convicted in the uh, originally convicted in the disappearances and such and I was actually working in uh, Eaton County Michigan for the sheriff's office and was good friends with the prosecuting attorney that handled that case and then I realized that uh, throughout my career I had become friends and colleagues with a number of people that were involved in the Don Miller case, uh, from judges and attorneys and police officers and detectives and investigators, right down to Don Miller's own defense attorney. And I thought, that is 
too big of a of a resource not to to tap into to tell the story because Don Miller is going to get out of prison someday. And a lot of people don't realize that. And so I thought people have forgotten who he is. They've forgotten what he did. And they certainly don't know that he's going to get out. And so that was the really the catalyst for writing this book. Yeah, I understand that. Uh, I, I totally, I, I, just done the same thing uh, with someone different. Um, so, wh- what is the basis of like? What's the basic storyline of Don Miller and uh, what he actually did? Well, the, Don Miller uh, had graduated from Michigan State with a degree in criminal justice, and he had a, a girlfriend by the name of Martha Sue Young. And on New Year's Eve, nineteen seventy-six, uh, they had. Uh, broken off their engagement uh, a few days before, but they had decided to remain friends. And that night, uh, she came up missing in the early morning hours of January 1st, 1977. And basically, the the police uh, started a uh, a missing person investigation, um, and they really uh, clued in on Don Miller right from the start. Um, And... As the investigation went on, um, they still couldn't find Martha. This went on for 10 months before they actually found some of her clothing and uh, still didn't have her body, though they suspected that he was responsible for her disappearance. And then about 18 months after her initial um, disappearance, uh, a co-ed at Michigan State University who worked for the radio station came up missing and two weeks later, her body was found in a farm field. She'd been stabbed and her hands had been cut off. And police really didn't make the connection between Miller and, and Martha Sue Young's disappearance at that point. They really didn't know who had murdered um, Marita Choquette was her name. Well, on the same day that Marita Choquette was found, another Michigan State University co-ed came up missing by the name of Wendy Bush. And uh, police weren't too sure that hers was a legitimate um, missing person homicide foul play because she was kind of a free spirit and all. And uh, about, oh, six weeks later, a school teacher came up missing near the MSU campus, and they still didn't have her body. So they had, they had recovered one body but still had three other missing women. And then two days later, after that uh, school teacher by the name of Christine Stewart came up missing, uh, Miller broke into a home in Eaton County where he raped a 14-year-old girl and then tried to strangle her with her own belt. And by the grace of God, the belt broke as he was strangling her. And at that exact instant, her brother, 13-year-old brother, walked in the house and Miller turned his attention toward the brother, uh, choked him out, and then stabbed him. In the meantime, uh, the young girl that he had just assaulted was able to run out of the house and flag down help. And uh, they were able to get his license plate number, and that resulted in his, in his arrest. So now it looks like he was, um, so it says he, he seemed like a devout Christian. Um, so he was a regular churchgoer, or he was a youth pastor? 
He was. He uh, he was a devout Christian, um, and he used that whenever he felt it would be to his advantage. And when he was eventually captured for the rape of the 14-year-old, uh, and they had his license number and his description and everything, uh, he said to the investigators, how could it be me? I'm a devout Christian. There's no way I could have done something like this. And he, he tried to use that to his advantage. Uh, Eaton County Prosecutor Jeff Sauter, who's now deceased, um, said it best when he said, his persona is a disguise. It's the same disguise that he used to lure women into his trap. And, and I truly believe that. Um, it, it absolutely is something that he uses to his advantage. Wow. So, so he got caught and put away. Um, what kind of sentence did they actually give him? Was it a life sentence with a minimum amount of time to serve? or? Well, back in, in the late 70s when he was convicted in the rape, uh, the, the sentencing guidelines in Michigan were a lot different than they are today. Today they have truth in sentencing where if you, if you, serve, if you get sentenced to, let's say, 10 to 20 years in prison, you have to serve that minimum of 10 years. Well, back in the late 70s, you were awarded good time and things like that, and so your sentence could be substantially shorter than what you would originally be sentenced to, if that makes sense. So he was, uh, he was sentenced, I believe it was 20 to 30 years for the, the rape and the attempted murder of the two teens. Well, by the late 90s, he was due to get out. He was going to get out because he had gotten all this good time and such. And uh, that's when uh, there was an organization formed called the Committee for Community Awareness and Protection. And it was a group of uh, investigators, lawyers, victims, survivors, uh, all working toward trying to find a way a legal way to keep Don Miller behind bars because he was going to be released. And it was then that they discovered three years earlier he had been caught with a garrote in his um, prison dorm. Uh, garrote is a strangulation device. And in this particular case, it was a 72-inch shoelace that had been tied in the middle, knotted in the middle, and then it had... Uh, uh, barrel-shaped wooden buttons on either end. And the prison guard uh, immediately recognized it as a garage, and so did the supervisors. And so basically they took Miller's uh, good time away. And so they shipped him from Michigan's Upper Peninsula, uh, north of the Mackinac Bridge, uh, down to Jackson Prison in southern Michigan. And... He was going to, uh, he got some good time taken away, but he eventually was going to get out. Well, when they started this organization called CCAP, and they were looking for a way to keep him in, they discovered this garage case, and they charged him criminally with that, in addition to being what, what's called in Michigan a habitual offender. And if you're convicted as a habitual offender, then uh, the judge can go outside the sentencing guidelines and imposing sentence and actually go up to life in prison. When he was originally sentenced in the late 70s for the sexual assault, he got that 20 years, 20 to 30 years, but they offered him a plea deal 
in exchange for taking investigators to the victims' bodies so that they could recover those bodies for the families. And so he took the plea deal, and the plea deal was that they would drop second-degree murder charges against him because he'd been indicted by a grand jury in two counts of second-degree murder, even without the bodies. But if he would take them to the bodies, they would charge him only with manslaughter in two of the missing women cases. And his sentence would be served concurrently with his 20 to 30 year sentence. Mm. So he got, he got a, he got a killer deal. If you'll pardon the pun. <laughs> oh, he really did. He well, got a killer deal. And that's really terrible, you know, and I know that, um, I, I hear comments from people saying, well, you know, these guys, these people never get out. They get life sentence in their, or whatever they get, but they, they never get out. But they actually do. And, and I don't know why people have that misconception that, uh, that these killers don't get out. They actually do get out, and it is something to be concerned about. It, it absolutely is. And, and that, that CCAP organization, although they, they haven't gotten together in the last, uh, 20 years or so, I, I suspect that they will, they will get back together and try to find a way in 10 years to keep Miller behind bars. He took the lives of four women. He is a serial killer. Uh, he's, he's a dangerous individual. And, and plus, uh, with someone like this, um, did, did he sexually assault all four of the people that he uh, killed? Yes. Um, he sexually assaulted them, and he, uh, according to the information that I've discovered, um, that he had uh, a sexual relation with them both before and after their death. Wow. So now has he had to have any treatment as far as um, his sexual assault and that kind of behavior? Um, was that mandated on him, or has he had any treatment at all? It was mandated on him. It was part of his original sentence in the late 70s, and he went through that uh, that sexual treatment in the prison. And uh, it was noted in several of the records that he had an intense hatred for women. And in fact, in the Garat case, there was um, some conjecture that uh, he was likely going to use that garrote on one of the female prison guards, um, although that was never proven, I don't believe. Right. Uh, but he did go through uh, therapy, and in his, in his attorney's closing statement in the Garat case, um, he made the statement that Miller had, Miller had completed his uh, sexual psychotherapy uh, and the prosecuting attorney handling the case came right back before the jury and said, yeah, he completed it only because the class was done. It wasn't that he completed it successfully. The class was done, and so it was over. So there wasn't really a, I don't know, a 100% passing score, if you will, I admit, so he if, got- if you understand what I'm saying. He got a certificate um, of uh, a he, ten- he was done with it, but it was only because the class had was done. Yeah. 
Wow. So now you had, is this right now, you had communication with him, like with the letters? or? Um, I know? did. Yeah. Uh, I interviewed uh, his attorney, uh, who is a colleague of mine um, in the private sector, so to speak, and I said, do you think that Don would talk to me? And, and Tom Bengston was his attorney, and Tom said, no. He says, I don't think he will. He said, but... I've already talked to his dad, and he said, here's his dad's phone number. Give him a call. Well, <laughs> I wasn't going to blindside a serial killer's dad, so I I sent him a letter, and, and I mentioned Tom Bankston's name, and lo and behold, he calls me up on the phone. And he said, you know, I've spoken to Tom about you, and Tom says you're a good guy and, and uh, that, you know, you're not a – he liked to call them uh, gore mongers, uh, people that want to do documentaries and movies about his son, and, and he gets approached by him all the time. And he, say, he said, you're not one of those people. And I said, no, I'm, I'm, I just want to tell the story, Gene. And so uh, Gene got a hold of his son. Um, he used, to, well, before the pandemic, he went down every other month and visited him at the prison, uh, even after 40 years. And... Uh, he got back with me, called me back, and he said, I talked to Don, and Don says he's going to write you a letter. And so I thought, well, I'll believe it when I see it. Yeah. Well, lo and behold, he did. He wrote me actually three letters. The first letter was just a, a quick one that said, hey, I talked to my dad. He really enjoyed speaking with you, and uh, I'm going to write you a letter that, that's going to detail what I was going through in the late 70s. And I thought, wow, that's pretty deep. So... Next thing I know, I get a two-page handwritten letter from him, and the letter basically says that I was dating a, a girl named Martha Sue Young. Um, she would not uh, communicate with me. I was like a, a steam pipe ready to blow, and I ended up taking her life. And then later in the letter, he says, uh, every time I'd see a woman, I would see her again. And so I, I wrongfully took the lives of three other women. Um, but interestingly enough, at least I thought, uh, was the fact that he never, in that two-page letter, uh, mentioned the sexual assault of the 14-year-old or trying to kill her and her brother. And I think that's significant. I think that's significant. So we'll see where that goes. But he has written me. Um, I, I've actually become uh, friends with his dad. Um, his dad's 87 years old. He's just the nicest guy in the world, and uh, and I like to chat with him. Uh, we talk about all sorts of things. Yeah. Well, it's, it's interesting. Uh, I guess it's really hard for you to tell, but um, and he didn't mention about the uh, 13, 14-year-old assault, but do you get the impression that he still has a hatred toward women? That, that's a difficult question to answer, and, and right. the reason I say that is because I haven't had a face-to-face -face meeting with him. Um, it's all been through the mail, and, and I honestly doubt that I ever will have a face-to-face -face with him. Um, based on everything that I've read from his prison records, I would say he probably does still have that. And I get uh, questions all the time, well, do you think that, that he'd still be a danger if he got out? Um, I don't know. I know that, that uh, he would be in his mid-70s when he got out. Uh, in 2031, he's scheduled to be released. And 
I would say that he's still he's still young enough that he could certainly turn his desires toward young women. He's already shown a propensity for that. Um, back in the late seventies, when he sexually assaulted the fourteen-year-old girl, so um, I, I guess it's not for me to make a judgment, but it certainly is a, a very valid concern. And 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 there's also like I don't know if you've contacted a lot of these uh, members of the family of, of some of these victims, and um, it, because they're still going to be quite young. Uh, wouldn't they be concerned as well of him being out? Absolutely they would. Uh, I can tell you that uh, the 14-year-old girl, although um, she's an adult now, I did not interview her, but we have become friends through social media, and she is uh, looking forward to reading the book. Her brother, uh, I interviewed him, and he was also looking forward to looking through the book and reading it and I talked to Martha Sue Young's sister and uh, I before she would answer any questions she asked why I was writing the book and I said because people have forgotten who he is and what he did and they don't know that he's going to get out there's four generations between uh, then and now and people need to know and, and so she opened up uh, a little bit and, and talk to me about her sister. Uh, but yes, there's a valid concern, um, and there are people out there that are fearful that if he gets out, he'll come after them. Right. I was going to say, there's probably people that are, you know, personally worried that they that he finds out where they are and he could come after them, and that's that's pretty valid. Right. I even got that question during an interview uh, last week. Um, some... I think it was, oh, it was a Facebook Live event we did, and uh, somebody typed in, are you afraid that, that he's going to come after you when he gets out? And I said, no, no, not at all. But but for the victims or the victims' families, there is a valid concern, yes. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Um, and, and I can see that. Um, so, so what, what, what do you think about this idea of someone like that getting out? Like, which, what should we do with people that have done such uh, just just awful things. Um, wh what do you suggest then? Um, put them away for life? Um, what is the adequate punishment? Well, if, if you look at other states, he could theoretically have been uh, executed by now. Um, I mean, for taking the lives of four women and, and what he did to that 14-year-old? Absolutely, but in Michigan, um, you know, we don't have the death penalty. Uh, it's life in prison without parole if you're convicted for uh, first-degree murder. In his case, he wasn't. And so having, I think it's important for people to understand that Don Miller is not in prison right now for murder. Uh, he never was in prison for murder. He was in prison for two counts of manslaughter and the sexual assault of the 14-year-old girl. Don Miller is only in prison today, right now, because he possessed a strangulation device back in the late 90s. He's already served his time for those deaths that, that he pled guilty to, the manslaughter convictions, and the sexual assault. That's behind him. 
the only reason he's in prison right now is because he possessed that strangulation device. So what's the answer? Uh, back in the late 90s, this organization called CCAP uh, worked in conjunction with some legislators and trying to come up with a bill that would quarantine dangerous um, people beyond their prison sentence um, so that they could receive additional therapy and such until they weren't a danger anymore. That bill passed the House but never made it through the Senate and basically was dead in the water. Um, but there are certain states where there were back in the late 90s that did have similar legislation like that. And whether or not those still exist, I don't know. Is that something that could be reintroduced under Michigan law? Again, I don't know. I can tell you that the former prosecuting attorney from Ingham County, uh, where all these murders occurred, uh, wrote a little blurb for my book, and he said, absent a change in the law, Don Miller will be released in 2031. And so I think that is the answer, is there has to be a change in the law. Is it is it something that that they can do to quarantine a dangerous individual? I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Have you, have, did you take a look at it from the parole standpoint as well? Like, uh, the, the, really, what does the parole board do? Um, are, are they trying to look out for society, or are they trying to get people out and rehabilitated in their minds? Well, I think the parole board looks at, uh, looks at several things, and, and one of those is, uh, obviously, uh, public safety. That's a huge, uh, huge element of it. They have to be sure that, that there's no danger to the public if this person is released. And they also look at, um, it, I don't know a lot about the parole board, but uh, from what I have read, they also look at is there uh, genuine remorse on the part of the person that, that's up for parole. Um, in this case, you know, I don't know. Don Miller's up for parole next year again, and he was up for parole five years ago. It was denied. Um, hmm. In in speaking with his dad, he said uh, his dad said, "You know, they allowed me in the in the parole hearing, but I wasn't allowed to say anything." He said, "If I said anything, the parole hearing was over, and that was it." Um, so. I don't know exactly what they look for, but but public safety I do know is is one of their biggest their biggest things. And if they think that that someone is still a danger, they're not going to be allowed parole. Yeah. And what, what kind of prison is he in? Is he in a maximum security, medium, or 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 do you know the type of circumstances he's in now? Uh I don't think it's a maximum security. Uh, I think it's, uh, I don't think it's a level one either, which would be the minimum. I think it's a medium security one. I think just given the nature of his offenses um, and his past, but I, I don't think he's in maximum security. Yeah, I, I find that quite often. Um, is he one of the ones that has uh, people sending him letters and girlfriends and all that too? Or uh, That's a good question. I don't know. Um, I suppose I could write him and ask him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I really don't know. I, I don't think so. I don't think he's the type of person. He's not a very charismatic 
individual from what I've seen. Um, I listened to an interview that he did with the state police detective back during the uh, Garak case. And um, it, when you listen to him, you can tell he, he's, he thinks about everything that he's going to say before he says it. And that tells me that he's a very calculating person. Um, he's very, um, very soft-spoken, and he thinks about everything that he's going to say. And I don't think that, that a lot of women um, are writing to him to say, hey, uh, when you get out, let's get married or something. No. <laughs> That's just my own opinion, though. Yeah, you never know. Uh, seems to be a, yeah. a thing, you know. Um, so that that's pretty interesting. So is this? Have you have you dealt with people like him in your career? Does he remind you of anybody? Um, I, you know, I haven't. I worked for a um, a rural sheriff's office, and uh, well, I I worked on a couple homicides. Um, I don't think I've ever met anybody that that sounded like him. I mean, it, and I mean no disrespect here, but if if you listen to that that tape uh, that I was mentioning, you can tell he's a very, for lack of a better term, creepy individual, and uh, you can tell that by listening to it. And I don't think I've ever heard anybody in my career that is that is as um, as calculating as he is. Do you think things like when, when, when someone like this is a, you know, a youth pastor and, and devout Christian and has that uh, persona about them, does that sort of affect um, the way they're investigated? Like, do, do you think the police kind of hold back on something like that, or do they just look right through that and it doesn't matter? Oh, I think they look right through that facade. I really do. I, and I think they can tell immediately that it's a facade. Um, uh, it, it's, it's very evident. In some of the interviews that I read uh, from the prison and from the original investigators, uh, M Miller could not um, explain while he was a devout Christian and believed in in all things religious, he couldn't explain why he was living with his new fiance, who um, you know he was living in sin with her. Basically, she was divorced, and they were living together and having sex together. And so he there was a there was a two different worlds, if you will, for him. And he couldn't explain those. And so that's, the, and, and the police saw right through that. And they hit him with that. They'd say, well, you know, if you're such a Christian, why are you living with a woman who's divorced and has a, a little girl and you guys are having sex together? He couldn't explain that. So, no, I don't think they hold back. Getting back to your original question, I think they, they see right through that. Yeah, yeah, they would have to. Pretty, pretty interesting. Wow. Do, do you, um, if someone takes home your book, reads it, finishes it, what do you want them to take away from it? Well, they need to know that Don Miller's getting out of prison. That in 2031, 
he'll have served his time and that he is not in prison for murdering four women. He's only in prison right now because he possessed a strangulation device. Uh, like I said earlier, he's done his time uh, for two counts of manslaughter, which was the plea deal in exchange for the bodies and uh, for the rape of the 14-year-old girl and the attempted murder of her and her brother. And right now, he's done his time for all that. And in 2031, Don Miller's going to walk among us again. Do you have any thoughts on that plea deal sort of thing? Because this, this happens a lot in cases where I understand the police kind of, um, or the prosecutor has to try and make a deal to get the bodies or get information and things like that. But quite often, this is what you see, um, these horrendous murderers um, get up for parole, and they seem to uh, take advantage of that. Do you think plea, plea bargaining is a good thing? I think in certain instances it, it is. And and I'll tell you, I interviewed Peter Houck, the, the Ingham County prosecutor that made that deal. And he said, uh, he said, when that deal was made, he said, I felt like I had just made a deal with the devil. But on the flip side of that, there were three families that needed closure. They had no idea where their daughters were. They knew that they were likely dead. And Peter Houck, who actually had ran his um, election campaign on the premise of doing away with plea bargain, with plea bargaining, had no idea that he would be faced with a series of disappearances uh, unlike any uh, in Ingham County before. And that deal wasn't specifically put together by uh, Hulk himself. It was a, a kind of a, a deal put together between him and the defense attorney, uh, Tom Bengston. Because Tom Bengston also felt, you know what? My client probably did this, but these families need closure. And maybe if we can work out a deal where he'll take us to the bodies, you know, he's not going to do any more time. They already knew that. They knew they could convict him for the second-degree murder of two of the women, but they also knew that they'd probably lose that on appeal to the, to the uh, Court of Appeals in Michigan. And so since he wouldn't get any more time, even if he was convicted of the second-degree murder, they felt, well, if we offer him a manslaughter, we'll have those death convictions at least on his record, and he'll still do the same amount of time, but yet we can still recover the bodies of the victims. So in this case, yeah, I think I can't imagine uh, the thought process that had to go into that, the decision-making, like, do I offer him this plea deal to, to give these families closure? I can't imagine the, the struggle that Peter Houck had to go through to do that. Yeah. But he did, and I think it was the right decision. Yeah, totally. I, it, just, it just seems that, uh, you know, it's kind of doing the right thing, but, um, you know, you're faced with this issue with a lot of killers and, and, and bad people 20, 30 years down the road, that's all. And, uh, yeah, when he get when he got his original sentence, everybody thought, "Oh, he's he's getting put away for twenty or thirty years. We'll never have to worry about him again." Yeah, he'll die in prison. Well, guess what? He didn't. No, 
and it, it goes fast. You know, at the time you're thinking this is good, but then it doesn't take long. Those 20 years fly by, and uh, you know, then you're dealing with this. Um, yeah. Did, did this? Did this? So the, this particular book, unlike your first ones, is is kind of a more current case, and people are still alive, and you're still dealing with family members and and issues that are still with living people. Um, did this cause any sort of a, a motion or any? Was this a struggle for you as compared to the other book? No, it, I guess the struggle was I, in the first two books. I was dealing with, um, you know, uh, first uh, a murder in 1897. The second book was a double murder that basically occurred at the same time. In this particular book, I had uh, I had four murders, um, and I had the the rape, and then the two attempted murders. So I had to cover all of that. And I remember when I sent my um, my manuscript, and my publisher sent it back and said, "You're going to have to pare this down." It was over 600 pages, oh. and because there was just so much information, um, emotionally, the I think the the biggest struggle is is knowing that, you know, I, I had a, that I built a relationship with, with Miller's dad, and I consider him a friend. And uh, he called me up last week, and uh, he just got in the book, and he, I could tell he'd been crying. Yeah. And he said, um, he said, you know, I'm having trouble reading this. And I said, well, I'm sure you are, Gene. I said, I, I knew you would. And uh, he said, uh, I, I didn't know some of this stuff. And I said, uh, I understand. And then he turned around and he said, you did a good job writing this. And I was floored. Yeah. That's the best. The killer's dad. Yeah. yeah. That's the killer's dad telling me I did a good job writing the book. Yeah. But I, I think that's the ultimate when you get people that, are involved in it personally, and they they really like what you've done. Uh, that's probably the yeah. Ul- yeah. That's the ultimate plus, you know, more than anybody else. Yeah, yeah. So, I, so will Miller get a chance to read it? I don't know. Um, I am actually gonna uh, write him another letter and say, hey, listen, um, the book's out. Your dad's read it. He's pleased with it. Um, I still stay in touch with him. You know, because I worry about him. He's 87 years old, and uh, I just wanted you to know. So uh, he'll find out the book's out. Hmm. Well, guess we'll have to wait and see. Um, so now, do you have a website of your own that you that you do, or is there a place people can come find you and find out about you? I do. Uh, it's called rodsadler.com, uh, 1D. And uh, I also have a Facebook page, Rod Sadler Author, and I have a Twitter account and uh, Instagram account. So uh, you can find me at any one of those places, and uh, the books are available on Amazon and uh, Barnes and & Noble. And there's a, I don't know if Schuler's is nationwide or not, but there's a, a big uh, bookstore here in Michigan called Schuler's. Uh, it's available there. Okay. Well, we're going to post that on our website. We'll put your website up as well so people can uh, find you if they forget or they can't find you. Uh, we'll have all those links. Um, God, it's it's quite a book, quite a story, and uh, um, 
you know, good job there. You know, it's uh, so you're going to keep on doing this sort of um, writing. I am. Um, I I retired from law enforcement in 2012, and I uh, I still have a, a one son in college, so I'm still working part time. Uh, I'd like to be able to write full time, but uh, that's probably still a couple years down the road. I do have another book in the works, um, and uh, I'm still in the research kind of. Uh, draft phase so yeah yeah well that's great um glad it's all turning out for you how you've been doing with the covid and all the stuff going on oh no worries here uh, i work in uh, emergency management so i've kind of continued working right through the the whole pandemic thing and and uh you know i take i take the precautions that need to be taken and yeah. uh uh, you know, we, we'll get through it. It's uh, it's a, a major inconvenience, but I think everybody's going to get through it. Uh, yeah, I, actually, I don't even notice it anymore, as, as in wearing a mask and things like that when I go out. I, you just sort of get used to it, you know, after a while. Yeah, yeah. You know. My biggest problem is, is uh, you know, I'll be uh, parking the furthest, parking spot and be halfway up to the store and realize I forgot my math. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's the worst, right? <laughs> and yeah. it's raining or something too, right? So Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> that's how it goes. Well it's been a it's been a really good interview. I, I appreciate you being here. Um our guest has been Rod Sadler and um the book is Killing Woman and it's the true story of serial killer Don Miller's Reign of Terror. Um thanks again. Thank you, Al. I really appreciate it, and I really enjoyed myself. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.